0: Don't
1: keep the deputies Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two Deputy Heads living on opposite sides of the country. I'm joined by my good friend Steve. Evening, Steve. Evening everybody,
0: thank you for joining us.
1: But we are also very fortunate to have a guest with us for this episode. Now, as Deputy Head, Steve and I always keep our eyes open for school leaders who seem to be doing things the right way. And what I mean by that is they're running schools based on their values and principles and showing that successful schools do not need to compromise when it comes to well-being and treating their staff properly. And we're joined by one of those leaders tonight, Dr. Colvan Atwell. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Colvan. I'm
2: very pleased to be joining you this evening. Thanks for inviting me. All
1: right. It's great to have you. Now, Colvan, just to give you some background about how we became aware of you and your school. I first noticed you on Twitter, well, some months ago, and I kind of really liked some of the things you had to say about school cultures and your values. You seem to be tweeting a lot about trusting your staff, empowering your staff. So I bought your book, The Thinking School, which I've devoured in, a, in about five minutes, really enjoyed. Steve joined your recent uh, webinar online and was super captivated, I think. Uh, so it's really great just to have the chance to get you here, talk to you about your school. So I was wondering whether to start, could you just tell us a bit about your background though and your kind of your own personal leadership journey? And I'm curious about how you got into headship and yeah, how you got to this point now and a little bit of context perhaps about where you work now and some of the challenges you might face.
2: Okay, um, I started as an NQT uh, working in um, Stratford in East London, um, which is which is famous now for the Olympics, London Stadium, Westfield. Um, There wasn't it wasn't like that then. It it was a very tough tough place to work, um, and I enjoyed it. Um, But my leadership journey began in terms of the fact that, unusually at the time, I had a panic when I first became an NQT because I think I really enjoyed the PGCE. I don't think that the normal traditional school environment really suited me in terms of that type of learning and a PGCE in terms of engagement in theory, research, trialing ideas and practice, I, I really enjoyed and um, so I thought well, when I was an NQT what am I going to do? How am I going to ensure that I'm continuing to develop and that I'm continuing to learn and reflect? So I decided to begin my masters in my NQT year and um, that was difficult because I was discouraged by school leaders at the time to do it um, so I, I did the only decent thing I could do which was to do it in secret um, and uh, I complete my masters and one of the things that really got me in, in, a, in a school that I worked in and I worked with a lot of children with social emotional and behavioral needs um, and so my dissertation focused on, on, on how to engage those children was the variation in the quality of learning experiences children were getting from class to class and I realised it was down to the individual dispositions of the adults that were working with them. And, and we all know what it's like. You have these passionate, motivated, enthusiastic, committed teachers who are there to do everything. Uh, and, and particularly, we're talking almost 20 years ago, you had some teachers who didn't care as much. And, uh, you know, I was shocked that I was working with 10 and 11 year old children at the time, and some of them who couldn't read. And and that frightened me. So. By the end of about my third year, I was made responsible for CPD, CPD lead at the time, which was my passion. Um, and I, at that point, I started looking at ways to engage teachers in research. Um, not long after, um, I left to work as a, at a, a school just a bit further down the road um, in, on the borders of Barking and Ilford. Um, And uh, I was deputy head and at the time, I think it was one of the top 10 largest primary schools in the country. And so as a deputy, I had even more scope to to experiment with enabling people to engage in research, developing forms of peer learning. And that was when I began my doctorate, which really accelerated this focus on how to develop authentic learning organisations. And a big, big thing for me was in the third year, um, But what I hadn't realised at the time, all I was doing, and what tends to happen in schools, is we just recycle professional development activities from education, and we don't look out into other workplaces. And my tutor at the time introduced me to workplace learning theories. So this concept of situated learning, that more learning takes place socially in an institution, and informally, than takes place during those formal activities. Like we focus on these one-hour staff meetings after school, what, what is the impact of them and this engagement in learning over time? So, the doctorate really allowed me to crystallize my thinking. I, I studied other workplaces hairdressers, steel workers, construction sites, um, and I found that, that the potential of developing an environment which maximizes this type of situated learning, you could potentially accelerate everyone's learning in such a way. And, and so, When you're a deputy it's a fantastic role but sometimes the limitation is you can only take it so far and if i'm talking about whole school cultural change there were limitations because if there were mixed messages of openness trust empowerment from one side but you've got to keep the control and the lesson observations and the judgments and the monitoring it ain't going to work so i took on my first um headship and It was actually, not not deliberately, but um, it was the school that I attended as a child. And I I was excited about how we were, I was four years into the doctorate, so I was excited about how we were going to develop this model. Um, What I didn't realize was I was going to inherit a school which had such challenges. Um, And the reason I say that is because after I was appointed in March um, to, to start in September, I was informed in June that the school had been put into a category of required improvement and that the percentage of children that achieved level four at the time, in English and maths the previous year, had been 60%. And I, I felt I was coming from a more challenging um, context. And we know that how different wards in terms of poverty can be very different, where the children were, were performing at 89%. I just thought, A, there must be so much potential here, but what what could be the issues? And what I uncovered were a staff who had lost their way, a lot of very young teachers, and motivated, enthusiastic teachers who hadn't had the opportunity to develop their craft, who hadn't had the opportunity to explore practice. There was no collaboration because everyone was so worried about themselves and their own classroom that anyone half decent didn't have the time and space to, to work with anybody else. And so uh, when you're requiring improvement, you, you're, you're lucky because you get to have double the amount of visits from the um, sick school improvement partner. And I remember she asked me at the time, what, what, what's your plan? Because Ofsted are going to return within 16 months, 17 months. Um, and if you haven't turned it around to a good, by, within that time, you could lose your job. Um, and I said, I've got a great plan. And she goes, right, let's hear it. And, and she did not look remotely convinced, yes. but I said, this is the plan. We are going to have no judgmental lesson observations because they don't work, they, they're meaningless because they don't support learning. They just describe performance. We are going to engage in a whole school collaborative action research project over time, investigating um, pedagogy essentially, but we're gonna look at assessment for learning. I'm not going to tell people what to do. Each year is going to come up with a collaborative action research question. I'm going to facilitate the research because we can't afford to get somebody in. And they're going to investigate that question and and the week before Christmas we're going to have a celebration event with which each group shares what they've learned. That is then going to inform our teaching and learning policy moving forward. Each group of teachers, three teachers in a year group, are going to engage in peer learning um, to overcome this fear of uh, being observed. Um, I'm going to go in the classroom and make no judgments. I'm going to to get to know the children and talk to the children. The other thing I said I'm going to do is I'm going to teach every day um, and I'm going to teach the most challenging uh, or the children that are the most furthest behind in um, maths each day in year six. Um, And I'm going to invite anybody to come in to watch a lesson. Not to think, oh, how good he is, but to to look at relationships and look at the questioning um, and the talk because we were looking at developing that. And she just looked at me, she put down a coffee cup, uh, and said, that's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> you're not going to do that. Um, you're going to go in, and you're going to observe every teacher, and you're going to give them a judgment, and tell, tell me either they're outstanding, good, require improvement, or inadequate. I mean, yeah, we will to be told they're inadequate. Um, and you're going to write that on a list and you're going to set targets reach them and that is going to protect you um, if, if this if this doesn't work out and I, I offered her another coffee and she'd had the good biscuits <laughs> and I, I saw her out and uh, I walked back in and I just thought to myself well I didn't really even think about it I thought well n- no one's going to make me do that mm. um, and I will live and die by my own values and beliefs and this is exactly what we're going to do and that is exactly what we did that is that was the start of the journey in term two we did a project we looked at dialogic teaching and talk for learning and over time um i built this conceptual framework which i call the dynamic learning community which is argued that if you implement these formal learning activities if you like because you could say plm is a formal learning activity because it's structured it's organized you then create a very dynamic learning environment, which uh, honestly, I mean, the, the impact in terms of the children's um, outcomes is phenomenal. So, the, the final point there those same teachers, yeah, and we don't even mention Ofsted, it's not even a word that's mentioned. We don't do anything for Ofsted. Um, those same teachers are the ones that have driven the school to the success. Obviously, where there were people who didn't want to buy into it, they may have moved on. But those same teachers who were told there were required improvement are the leaders now of, of the school. Um, and last year, I was exec head of a second school. And this year, I've taken on another school, which is required improvement. And we go with the same model every time. And so the last, last line of the book, I think, is about how do we take a thinking school and, and, and move it towards a thinking school system? So that, that's hopefully a little bit of background and context
1: that's perfect that's that's such a wonderful overview and I was as I was listening um Colvan I was really trying to think about the the kind of threads that seem to come up in your career and there were two that came through really strongly for me and the first one was this interesting culture you seem really fascinated by cultures of organizations and how that it seems to be kind of the basis of the work that they do so that's that's come through in what you've said from an NQT Um, And then doing your master's, being really curious about these different workplaces right up to now. And also just your real interest in learning and seeing us as professionals, as people that enjoy learning and should be able to continue to learn. And it shouldn't be uh, kind of closed off. And we'll explore that a bit more in a minute because we've got some bits of your book we want to unpick with you. Um, So you got to the point where you decided to write a book. So how did that come about? And uh, yeah, why? Why did you want to put your thoughts into a book called The Thinking School?
2: Well, I, I, that was that. That seems now really obvious, but it, it, it was just a response to a question. Now I, I take my hat off to anybody who's done a doctorate in any field because mm. it is the most grueling learning opportunity you can you can come across. And 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 I was doing it at a time when I was taking on a headship of a school in RI. You know, I had three children, aged three and under. Um, but it was good because it means I didn't get to go go out so much. So <laughs> I, could, I could spend time studying, but it, it was a real stubbornness because a normal person would just give up because what's the point? Why am I doing this? Um, but by the end of it, I enjoy writing because writing for me is thinking, writing for me is learning. But you lose a bit of the passion for it because you cannot be as creative as you really want to be because you are writing for this concept of joining this academic community. Mm. So by the end of it, you want to produce a thesis, which um, is what other people want rather than what what technically you want to write about. So when I was doing my um, Viva, which I think, I, I think oral examinations are fantastic. We should have more of them. We should okay. have them through school. Um, when I was um, arguing for my thesis, um, which was fantastic because it was, you know, how often did someone spend two hours asking you about something that has been part of your life for eight years. And it's probably pretty boring by that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she then afterwards, she said to me, the, the examiner said, well, what are you going to do next? And I looked at the, the thesis sitting there, this big, thick thing in front of me, and I said, well, for a start, I don't want to look at that again <laughs> for ages. Um, and, I'm, and I just said, look, you know, I, actually, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to take the learning in that and I'm going to write it in a way where people can actually use it. Mm. Um and I said I'm going to write a book, and she said it's 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 that's a fantastic idea, and I I'd literally came up with the title there and then, mm. and I'm I'm really grateful with um, John Cat because they mm. they chose to took a take a punt on me because um, I had no I had no social I had no online profile I had I, I it was really a um, a long journey really and and the other thing is. That by writing the book, it, it's something that your kids can say; they can understand that. Oh, I've got a thesis. I've got a doctorate. <laughs> oh, pretty pretty useful. Pretty useless when you're falling over and I haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah. So that so that was the inspiration behind the book. And just in terms of um, culture, and um, particularly as leadership, you, you know, I often get frustrated with leaders moaning about teachers or moaning about I can't get good teacher. I can't get this. Um, and not realizing that actually, as leaders, we are setting the culture mm. for the school, and you are the lead learner. And if you are demonstrating that you're taking risks, you're making mistakes, you don't know everything, that you're, you're willing to continue to learn, to grow, I still teach every day, mm. um, even if I'm a exec head over two schools. But firstly, I don't want to miss out on all the fun. But <laughs> secondly, is so that when I engage in professional dialogue with teachers, we're having conversations on a level. About children, and we continue to be curious. And, and it, yes, I've, I've written my thesis, that model is mine, but I read um, Peter Sonnage's work on the learning organization, the fifth discipline field book, which talks about authentic learning organizations. And the one point I'd make about that, Russell, is the fact that there isn't a natural inclination for schools often to, to improve and to innovate. Mm. Often leaders will go into leadership and say this is the model that works for me and I'm sticking with it or, mm. or reading from the same book in assembly as they were 10 years ago. Now in business and in other industries, in other institutions, you have to innovate, you have to improve. And that is the, that is the way in which, which we do it here. The other, the other big one is to have an authentic distributed leadership team, which, mm-hmm. which would argue that an NQT could inform um, practice. As much as the head teacher across the school, because mm-hmm. co- the concept is everybody is then bringing their brains to work. And um, the, the, the the seminal work on workplace learning was by and Wenger, Communities of Practice. And they say, judge the quality of learning of your institution from the most recent entrant, late, like the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the NQTs come in. So, you know, people get shocked if, if this associate advisor comes in. Or, or often come in and, and say, oh, we want to talk about a curriculum and just the NQT in it mm. because they they believe the hierarchy. They think it's about hierarchy, mm, sure.
1: um,
0: but it's not.
1: No, and yeah. I, I actually had a, a, yeah, I've had similar experiences from perhaps local authority advisors or whatnot who have, have come in and I've maybe introduced a certain bit and then I've wanted to pull in someone else and they've gone, well, why don't you do this? because they felt comfortable with me and they felt convinced by something I've had to say. And I'm like, but they're not going to grow if they don't get a chance to come and chat to you today. So they're going to do it today. Um, So now that's really good to hear. And um, your book is very accessible and that you talked about turning the the thesis into something that's accessible and that people can just pick up. It really is. It's an easy read, um, but it's still very challenging and pushes you to think differently about things. And I really like that. So, we're going to just pick up on a few aspects of the book that really stood out for us. And that was hard, actually, because it's, <laughs> it's a nice small book that's easy to get through, but it's got so much good stuff in it. So to condense four or five areas, but well, I'm sure we'll have no problem really getting into some depth on, on some of those. So um, I'm going to pass over to Steve, who's going to start off by just, uh, just picking up on uh, one of those areas
0: yeah thanks russell um Colvin, you describe in the book the dynamic learning community that you just referred to actually and um, the model you tried to cultivate over time and as you introduce this idea in the book you say something that really stood out to us it says we have to believe that the right culture and conditions in place our teachers can learn and develop in the same ways that we believe the children can learn and develop we wouldn't give up on children so why are we so quick to give up on teachers and I love that uh, the uh, philosophy and ideology around that. Can you tell us a little bit more about where this thinking came from and how you've developed it within your scope? Yeah. Um, I, well, I you know
2: I, I haven't read the book for years because I've I've I've, I've written it, but um, it it is from the heart, and that is a belief I've always had. And so the the concept in which I think we should see leaders is 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 very simple. That, as a head teacher, I see the staff team and let 's just take the teaching team, for example, because it 's like a class in the same way that I want to see want the them to see their class, and by that I mean how can I provide an environment in which I understand where every teacher is at in their learning, what their strengths are, what their areas of practice they want to develop, and ideally, they should tell me that through dialogue um, and I provide a uh, let's say a zone of proximal development to enable each of them to come into work each day, taking into account what they already know, but challenging them sufficiently enough in a safe and open environment to enable them to succeed. And I think the system is too balanced towards setting teachers up to fail. You know, I have not found a comparison, industry comparison um, of a profession in which the numbers of people leave um, and I don't know what the comparison with education with everywhere else is, but very rarely do I hear teachers saying they're leaving because of the children. Um, and uh, you know, there are some teachers who do give up on children, but we wouldn't accept it, would we? We wouldn't say, oh, right, you're not good enough, you're never going to be good enough, so maybe this isn't, isn't for you. And that, that requires a mindset of patience. I'll tell you, and I, mean, I apologise, I'm not going to name any names, but I, I have got the most... Unbelievable teachers that I work with. Who, if you look, went in to see them when they were doing their first teaching practice, you wouldn't think they were very good at all. (laughs) Absolutely not, right? They didn't have a clue. But why would we expect them to? Mm. You know, and and yet, so what I'm looking for are dispositions and attitudes. And the thesis has argued that you can develop positive dispositions to learning if you provide a workplace environment. Which values the opportunity to take risks and make mistakes, and, I, and I'll give you an example. Everyone has to reflect and think about themselves. Now, as an NQT, or in my second year of teaching, I'm telling you, I could perform, right? So, if Ofsted came in, and, or, or anyone came in, bearing in mind I've got this, you know, unruly, supposedly unruly pack of children. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying it was the Wild West, but, you know. I was, I was could every day, um, but I, if, I did a, if I did a maths lesson and I could do an all singing, all dancing, counting sticks, chanting, engagement, dialogic teaching, you know, they would say it's great, or I would do a PSHE, getting deep, deep into the drama, PE I could do. I, I, I wouldn't teach English that first year because I was stronger at maths than English because I hadn't been taught all the grammar that was required at the mm-hmm. time. I wasn't even doing science because I wasn't as confident setting up all the experiments. And last, definitely least, I was never going to teach a music lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not have a clue. So what should I be being observed on? I should be being observed on English. And, and, and my first MA module I did was specifically on teaching reading so that I could learn. I should be observed teaching science. I, I should observe teaching music because that is the learning mentality. But what do we do? In a, in a hierarchical, performance-orientated culture, we will maintain our strengths and only demonstrate our strengths, and we'll think about the judgment, we won't think about the learning. Um, so, so fundamentally, I create a culture which enables teachers to thrive, because you can't spend all week with every teacher, but you can develop an environment which enables them to be able to engage in professional dialogue and to grow, and, to tell you, look, um, I, I want to go and watch someone teach this because I'm struggling with it. It, it. It's a fantastic environment to be, to be part of. And just, to, you know, I've gone into a school in December which is requiring improvement and has, has, has gone down and is struggling, and I'm using exactly the same model. Teachers love it. Leaders find it um, disempowering because mm. if they're not going around telling people what to do, they feel that they're not fulfilling their purpose. I don't even know if I answered
0: your question. Oh, absolutely you did, yeah. Um, can I just follow up, though? Because um, in the same chapter, you talk about some formal activities uh, that can take place in a dynamic learning community. and I think you touched on it there, actually. Um, can you tell us some more about those kind of activities and the impact they have had in your school, maybe the one that you're beginning to work with since December as well?
2: I'll be, I'll be straight up with you. If I'm, one, if I'm sitting in that school and it's a five-form entry school, Right, so there's over a thousand kids. It's in the most deprived wards in the London Borough of Redbridge. It's um, it's just on the borders of Barking, um, and it's uh, and it's not full roll. Parents don't, the parents of the kids that are there don't want the kids to be there. It, it it is tough, hard work, right? If I'm if I if I'm sitting and I and I don't, I'm not an office person. I, I find it difficult to just sit, um, which is why I'm not good with Zoom meetings. Um, <laughs> If I decide I want to ask a teacher a question about something, I actually have to go to the top floor to a year three class with the NQTs. Because she's the least frightened person when I walk into <laughs> mm. a classroom mm. because she hasn't <laughs> developed the fear yet. Mm. Um, so you can't just say, right, guys, we're moving from judgmental observations, we're going to do peer learning. So you have to develop a peer learning policy and a structure that enables people to feel safe. It's like a contract. What, what can someone do when they come into your classroom? Who decides on what they're going to watch? And, and, and the person who's, who's under, uh, leading the lesson is going to decide. So that to me is a formal activity. But what happens is you break down some of the barriers to informal dialogue. Because all of a sudden, that person you've not really met with or you're worried about telling them what you think because they, you don't want them to think you don't know what you're doing. You've suddenly broken down the barrier you've been in each other's classroom there's no you don't have to fill a form you don't have to write anything down you don't have to mm. get it judged but leaders have to have faith because there's an over monitoring culture and I'll, I'll give you an a, a example of that um because that that could be seen as a, a like a formal activity now if i say right okay steve um I'll, I'll, let's decide on what we want to do you're going to do a project and you're going to develop um uh literacy through a creative curriculum in year two right and if and i say look i trust you to go for it right and you're saying all excited now if i then say now i want to see your planning for the project oh okay yeah all right um, but not to say oh let's have a chat about it let's see what you develop i want to monitor your planning for the project and then i say all right can i come in and watch you just to check that you're doing what you said on the plan oh yeah all right then. And then I'm going to judge you on the, on the extent to which you're doing that. And then, by the way, I, I've seen the planning, I've seen the teaching, and I still don't trust you, I need to see the books, <laughs> right? To check that you actually said what you were going to do, what you weren't going to do, and it's actually in the books. What that creates is, is a, a culture of doing something because you think you have to do it, rather than thinking about it, engaging in it. So I don't check people's books. I don't, check, uh, I don't go in to make judgments of, of teachers, because that's not learning. I don't check planning. I look at the children. Now, if we agreed we want creative critical, creative thinkers, we want them to be independent, we want them to take risks, that is what I'm looking for and that is what I'm going to see. And also, it gets to the point that culture changes, is within a couple of years, people ask me to go into their classrooms because they want me to watch a particular thing that they're trying, so that the culture has shifted. Um, let's do, do a couple of points. Three years of peer learning we did, before we we moved on to lesson study, Be, because that is when you're ready to take it even further to, to design a research lesson. And let's have a look at the impact. You know, within twenty five people at the school in these years have either completed the masters or are on their way to completing the masters. And these are people who didn't even like school when they were at school. And they and I don't no one is compelled to do it. It's amazing. Once the system's up and running everyone's talking about it, they are knocking on your door. Those same children that were 60%, their younger brothers and sisters have put the school, as a um, mayor of London, the schools for success, three years in a row. And there are only 34 primary secondary schools in the whole of London that have achieved that award three times. And it's awarded for the progress made by low priority attainers. So lots of good schools can make progress for, and I I talk a little bit about that in the book, for children who are, you know, are suited to the learning environment, are set up to succeed. The best schools will impact upon everybody. And and that is our aim. And and the drive from the top has got to be, and I think you've mentioned this before, that we're only as successful as the child that isn't happy or the child that achieves Mm -hmm. the least. And you're only as successful as the the teacher that either isn't happy or, or... or isn't engaging and the the fundamental thing is everybody has to have the opportunity to succeed and that that is really important
0: amazing fantastic yeah thank you very much
1: so you, you start to touch on some practical elements that were really reassuring to hear you talked about the agreed policy around some of that and I really get what you're saying there it's going to provide a kind of a safety and security for people when you're launching into a new culture that's going to take time to build and I think that's a really important point that cultures don't just change overnight do they that's you've got to be able to invest and, and take your time over that so when I'm looking back at this this table of all these formal activities and we've got things like the coaching opportunities for all staff which is amazing and something I've really been keen to explore more in my own school, Um, more time for formal learning and so on. You you know, don't you, what's coming because you get it probably every time you talk about this stuff is the practical elements of, of of that um, call how you, you allow for that in your school day, because we, I think there'll be a lot of people listening that really do want to go in this direction and they're, they're a bit nervous and they're a bit scared and they're just thinking, God, like everything's so crammed. We have a system that doesn't lend itself to this kind of approach what would you say in, uh, around the kind of practical elements of, of developing a dynamic learning community?
2: right well, firstly, you definitely can't do all the things right from the start right mm. um, and just to give you a little context over time, I would say that it was it took three years, three complete years for me to be happy with the cultural shift at the school but what what does happen the, the the balance of the dynamic learning community is it reproduces itself mm. so the stronger the the culture the quicker and i've noticed this in the last few years the quicker people accelerate so um say, an, say a teacher at our school in their third year of teaching now the, their development in those three years will be even stronger than the first group in their first three because of the strength of the culture. So when I'm going into this second school, I'm looking three to five years. If you give yourself three to five years of space, you've taken some of the pressure off. And if you, if I, you know, it might be an interesting thing with this question to actually design a practical guide of what, what comes first. And so if I, if I go back to say originally when I went to Highland and what I'm currently doing at the second school is you start with the teacher professional learning and to say that actually we're, we're not doing one-off lessons, one-off, uh, staff meetings, we're, we've got, we're going to look at a theme over time. Mm. You're going to get time to take some risks and make some changes to practice. So immediately remove the or lesson you're not going to be under pressure. Immediately you're getting them engaging in research. And first thing is make it as easy as possible. So a, a simple activity, taking Dylan Williams, Professor Paul Blacks, uh, Inside the Black Box, divvying it up with your groups, reading each tell us what we've got because what you're doing is you're then valuing their voice rather than right guys this is what we're all going to do once you've got them to decide about their values what what do they believe in what do they want their teaching and learning to look like you're then going to remove some of the some of the challenges so if we're then looking at what we've done peer learning you've done action research um and and uh non-judgmental lesson observations the other thing is how do you make the time at the same time you're empowering teachers, you need to equally be empowering teaching and support staff. Um, and so peer learning is, is actually uh, a really easy thing to do because if you're saying we only want 20 minutes, so on, at 30 on Thursday, you two are going to go into that classroom for 20 minutes and, uh, you know, at worst, I, I could cover a class, the, the teaching assistant cover a class. What you're then saying is we value your learning. Coaching is fascinating because coaching I will describe as the glue between all those professional learning activities. If you're not equally enabling people to become so- solution-focused with coaching, it will limit the, ima- the amount they engage in the learning. Mm. So what did I do with coaching? I thought the teachers are all um, focusing on this uh, uh, um, assessment for learning research project. Every Monday morning, um, I'm going to ask all the teaching assistants to join me at 815 and I'm going to do eight weeks of introducing the concept of coaching. So you're doing a multi-tiered approach with different people. Bearing in mind though, the greatest responsibility of, my title is head learning leader at school, it's not head teacher, is that is my greatest responsibility, the learning of the staff. Um, When we did it at Highlands, if you want to create a culture, one of the most simplest things that came out of eight years of research, is the opportunity for people to work in different groups. Mm. Whether you're a secondary school or a primary school, you end up having year group culture, department culture, which then does impact on the school culture. So when I did coaching at, um, at Highland, what I did is I combined leaders, people from opposite year groups and office staff. So you suddenly built this sense of of community. And most of the people at Highland would say that the coaching is the biggest professional learning experience they've engaged in. And if you take... If you start building this up over time and and say in term two, right, you're going to do a different um, model, a a different subject for your actual research. Now we're going to work in partnership with the university. Some people are going to get to do the MA. You will see the transformative effect. The the other point I would make um, is that we as a leadership team have no weekly meetings. We, We just don't have weekly meetings because that time, is best used for us if we've got a very strong shared vision and understanding, we need to be getting on with it. What we do do is we have one day off, one day off-site each half term with a day of, of, of pure coaching, which is, which is what we would call an action learning set, um, which is a, a really deep examination. But all of these things can only be done if you operate in a culture of honesty and trust. And that culture has to be set at the top. Mm. Um, and and it has to has to go right the way through. And and the point about trust is that it it can't happen by me saying, "Oh, Russell, trust me," because the first thing you think when someone says "trust me" is like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm I got to worry about this it. <laughs> it comes from uh, regular interactions in which mutual needs are met. Mm. That are you genuinely listening to someone? And we also use coaching in terms of our dialogue with parents. Mm. And, and, and fundamental to coaching is the ability to actively um actively listen and improving that skill.
1: Can I pick up on that um Colvan because I'm fascinated by coaching and we've um we've been doing some wellbeing webinars that you're probably aware of with uh Couple of friends of mine called Liz Scott and Stu Newbury, and they're they're coaches. Although they've kind of got a bit fed up of that name, really, because what they talk about a lot is that in their work they're listening for well being, and that's a phrase they use a lot. And I just I just saw a real kind of overlap there with the culture you were describing of actually really deeply listening to someone really really hearing what they've got to say because we all want to be heard don't we and everyone I think that sounds like something you've really worked hard to cultivate in the schools you've worked in is really hearing each other hearing people in all roles because they've all got something to offer so I just wanted to pick up on that and do you think we overly mystify the idea of coaching? Because often when I've spoken about that in schools that I've, I've, I've joined, there's this kind of, oh, how do you do it? And do we need some training? And do, do you think we overly mystify coaching? Do you think there's a simplicity to it that we sometimes overlook?
2: Um, well, uh, there's quite a few points there, really, because mm. I, I really wanted to, to ensure that in the book, I, I demonstrate a very simple model. Mm. Um, to develop coaching because once you understand the concept um, it's then about developing your skills and the 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 skill of listening is really undervalued Mm. and I'll I'll talk about it in terms of my own journey Um, I, I when I first started in my career I was extremely selfish I absolutely did not see myself as a leader All I wanted to do was be be with my class. And and if that meant going against school policy, um, going against every rule book you can think of, I would do it because that's all I was interested in. I was researching about my class. Um, I wasn't interested in the team necessarily. I wasn't interested in uh, sharing ideas. Um, And so when I came to to learning about coaching, I realised that actually I wasn't very good at listening. Mm. And we don't realise that it's a skill that you have to continually refine and practice. And every time I've developed coaching with, um, with teams and, you know, I've, I've led three schools, everybody realises that they are not actually find listening very difficult mm. because partway through listening to someone, you've already started thinking about your response. So you're not actually listening actively. You're waiting for them to finish so you can say what you want to say. Um, and that's the first skill of a coach. I think you're right, we do demystify it, but it's because people, I'll tell you why, it's because people think they're coaching and they're not. Mm. Um, uh, it, in, in pure coaching, you're not giving any advice. So I've coached someone that I've only met, I've only met them for an hour, hour, hour in her, their life, for an hour coaching session, mm. but I didn't need to know anything about them the, previously or their work or their context. And, and the key thing in coaching is discipline. And what I do as, an, as, a, as a facilitator with an action learning set is I maintain the discipline. And one example of um, coaching is if you're actively listening, and we call this mirroring, when you're listening to someone, actually mirror back what they have said, but not in your interpretation, in their words. And it's a very powerful tool to support parental engagement. Because you, I always hear these calls about having difficult conversations. No conversation should be difficult if you're mm. authentic and open mm. and you can listen. Um, so you're right, it is demystified, but it's also because a lot of people, unfortunately, particularly in leadership, say they're coaching and they're coaches, but they're not, really, um, they're not really coaching.
1: No, and it sounds like your understanding of coaching or, or your belief in how it should look comes from actually really understanding the principles rather than being obsessed with tools and techniques, which you're quite right. If if I'm listening to you, uh, ready to coach you and ready to pull out my toolkit of coaching, I'm not listening. Um, no. So that, that really resonates with me. Thank you. Uh, Steve, I'm going to pass back over to you.
0: Yes, thank you. This kind of follows suit actually, Colvin, because um, one thing I was really fascinated with when reading the book um, was your approach towards appraisal in your school because it's very different to uh, the norm and I think there's always a fear of appraisal in school and just this ideology that maybe it's not being done correctly. Um, can you tell us about how this teacher-led approach to appraisal can be seen in the aspects of school life within your school?
2: Well, uh, I think it, it depends on how what you want from your teaching team. Do you want them to mm-hmm. conform? Do you want them to go through hoops? Because my fear is, if I if I create people who um, are very much reliant on direction, then they're gonna they're gonna have a classroom of children who are completely reliant on <laughs> direction, and. I think that we need to I really think we need to respect the professionalism of our teachers so much more because we do have a structured NQT year don't we we do we do we do look at targets and areas for development but it, that's accepted because it's done collaboratively and and the concept of appraisal is if I'm a reflective thinking practitioner I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say to you right the next step of my learning journey is this this and this and this is how I'd like to develop it. Now, as a leader, what you, what you might say is, look, I like that and I like that, but we might not be ready for this. But again, that has to happen within a culture of trust. This uh, um, concept of you, you, you're gonna judge, be judge on this whole school target, right? Now, personally, what if, why is that relevant to me? That's not relevant to my class, that's not relevant to my context. Now, I might say I want everybody to think about a target related to their pupil premium children. But they, the, every child is different, um, and so it, it's not like it's just you know. I'll, I have a, people. Many leaders have a very strange reaction to my concept of empowerment. I've had a lot of leaders tell me, "Oh, if you just empower the staff, they wouldn't do anything." To, I've had I've had people say, "Well, you can trust too much," or "Or well, there's no point in coaching when you just have to tell them what to do." No, no, no. <laughs> You've missed the point every time and leaders in hierarchical environments grow people who can be successful in hierarchical environments and I've realized that um, I would I managed to work in a school in my first school with an unusual head teacher who in my interview said I, um, I want someone who's going to challenge me and I thought well alright <laughs> you come to the right person <laughs> um, And that's what I want, Um, I I, I won't describe her, I've got got a teacher in uh, her third year with us and she's already um, the year group leader, she's already like can lead the curriculum across the school, Um, I don't think she had any interest in being a teacher, she just thought I've just done my degree, Uh, right last knock-ins in August, Oh, I'll just go and apply for that, turns up, um, but you, you give the environment don't you? Um, but she 's feisty, and, and she challenges, and I think it is so important to surround yourself with diverse voices, to, to, to surround yourself by people who might want to think in diverse ways. And I think often as leaders, we feel challenged if someone's coming up with ideas that we maybe haven 't come up with. I think that if, if leaders were working in the way that I describe uh, the book, they 'd have less stress, and they 'd have a greater sense of well-being. And I often write about um, uh, well-being because I'm slightly controversial. I don't know if it's controversial, but I'm not really big on celebrating people's birthdays and cards, whatever, but I still do it. Um, I'm more interested in the listening. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I I, am an adult and I'm working in a school and I'm working alongside people who trust me and allow me to take risks and give me a voice and have shared values with me, I have a sense of well-being. No matter how difficult your day is. Um, alternatively, if you're if you're unhappy and you're not valued and you're on edge and you feel you're gonna be judged, no amount of cake in the staff room is mm. gonna it's gonna make it's gonna make <laughs> up for that. So 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 th- th- that's really important to me in terms of um of the culture and in terms of making sure you have connections with each individual member of staff. I mean if you can do that in a five form entry. Um, you can do it, you can do it anywhere, you have to be, sometimes things are misinterpreted, be visible. Yeah, but, but, but what are you doing with that visibility, you know? I don't want someone being visible with, every time they see me, they have a go at me.
0: <laughs> That's exactly.
2: That's what to do with that. So mm. it, it, they are subtle things, but which is why I think the framework helps. Um, but often I think people are, 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 are challenged because so many people have said, oh, we want our school to run like yours but the associate advisor says this, or I'm worried about Ofsted um, saying, or oh, it's all very well, oh, you're an outstanding school, you can do that. No, but we're outstanding because we did. Mm. We did that. Um, not, um, and, and, and another example, when I was going to do the um, master's, I was told oh, you should do master's when you're for a good team of staff, which is just, what, what <laughs> you're missing the point here. This is about learning. Um, so there's lots of bad advice about
1: over the years. And when you talk about missing the point there, really got me thinking about the uh, the link between our, our behaviour and our beliefs. And I think what you're saying there is when when a lot of people ask you about this stuff, they're obsessed with the behaviour and they want to go and change the behaviour of the school rather than getting back to the principles and the values and the culture that's underpinning it first. Because it sounds to me like a lot of the things that you've done were just a natural consequence of the of the change in the culture of the developing the, the trust and 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 the value led um, kind of system. Is 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 that a fair observation?
2: Yeah, and let's think about it. Because as a leader, you you are potentially scrutinised more than any other person, mm. right? And you know you could build trust over years, but it would, so you're you're modelling to every member of staff how you want them to talk to children. So every time you talk to a child, you interact with a child, you are modelling for everybody else. Every time you talk, if you talk to an adult with respect and care, um, and, and you know, if you are the person who, um, in really successful schools, if any child is crying, the first member of staff coming past would 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 take responsibility yeah. for that child. You'd never walk past the tissue on the floor because the first person going past would, would pick it up. Um, and in, And... That is the important thing. Um, because if you're saying, oh, we should, you know, we should all respect teachers, and then you've got some teacher going out of the, the office crying because they've been treated awfully, it undermines the entire mm. school culture. And the other thing is that I think in very high, hierarchical environments, they're just stifling teacher voice. You know, you just, you're, you're, you're often people will say, we do this at our school, or, our school's great at this, and it, and it really isn't. Mm. Um, and that's the thing about being really reflective and honest. And the other thing about school is you never crack it. It's never going to be perfect, which mm. for me is an exciting thing. But often that can lead people, people control, control teachers because they don't trust them mm. fundamentally, mm. because they don't think that they can make decisions for themselves. But in well, learning in- organisations, you have to empower and trust those that are on the front line.
1: Well, and then you, you when when you do control, you develop that helplessness, don't you? That we talk about with children, it's like the the, the yeah. group that's always been stuck with a TA for yeah. every year of their life. They become helpless and they believe that's mm-hmm. the the limits of their uh, capabilities. And I guess, like you said earlier, that's that's the same for teachers if we're uh, if we're looked after in that way. Um, you got me thinking, um, Corvan. Then when you were talking about Steve asked about appraisal and. I suppose you found it almost sort of laughable that some heads, some of the, some of the fears they might have if you put, put that in the hands of, um, of teachers, you know, would they bother? And um, I don't know whether years ago, right at the start of my teaching career, I watched a, a talk by Dan Pink on motivation. Did you ever see that? And he talks about three things that um, really are key to motivation. He talks about purpose, autonomy and mastery. And I, I remember thinking as an NQT about trying to develop, You know, use those principles in my class purpose autonomy mastery they've they've got something to work for that they really believe in that's the purpose they've got some choice and and actually there's something inherent in us as as humans that we we want to get good at stuff we don't want to sit still and be rubbish at something and i don't know many teachers that are actually comfortable with not not getting better at their job most want to do a really good job and are trying their best every day and i think you talk about that in the book don't you
2: Yeah I I think that it's a difference between being told something like and discovering it for yourself Mm. and you know I've I've got a a absolutely um, fantastic um, teacher who uh, yeah it's difficult I don't want to give give it away too much but who also happens to be one of the nicest people in the world Um, and when we have people coming along, like we get lots of visitors from across Europe, Australia, Africa. Uh, I, I often get her to come and, and talk about her, her journey um, because in her early year as an NQT, she didn't have a clue about teaching. and. It wasn't because of her motivation and dispositions or attitude. It was because she hadn't had the opportunity to learn and grow. And what she talks about is she says it took her longer to, to, to understand and because she was unable to discover for herself what works. So when I went into a lesson as an NQT, I might have thought 10 things I could have told her that she needs to develop. You don't tell someone 10, 10 things. You tell them the next three most important things so they are moving on to the journey of learning more that they're moving on to the journey of questioning and reflecting, and, and and he's got it spot on there because that's about self-driven, independent learners. We absolutely create a culture in schools which is about the disempowerment of teachers because if, if you are monitoring my planning, if you are there to observe my teaching, if you are monitoring my books, what you're saying there is you, you're not really trust in me what I want is I want the practitioners to do that and I want the practitioners to identify so when they come through their appraisal which are the areas of their practice that they really feel they need to develop and where you're in an environment where people go lots and lots and lots of different classrooms the culture is not one of defending your practice it becomes one of uh, appreciative inquiry oh we oh my god you know what she's really good at that go and have a look at this because there's no such thing as a perfect teacher Fundamental to teaching is relationships. And when you get frustrated with a child who isn't getting something, the easiest thing to do is to tell them. And inexperienced teachers intervene too quickly Mm. rather than saying, you don't get it, good. Keep thinking about it, I'm gonna come back in a couple of minutes, tell me what you you do get. Actually giving space and time to make mistakes, to realize that creativity comes from successful mistakes. And I, you know, well, I'm not teaching very many kids at the moment. I know next week, if I was teaching my group, I might do something, and I'll think, that didn't work as well as I wanted it to, right? But it's important that I'm doing that thinking and making that decision. And I'm also not stopping trying things out. Um, We we work in a a very dialogic form, okay? So everything's about the child and the child voice, And the children are encouraged to challenge the adult. And so when I go in and I hear children saying, I don't get it. I don't think that is a deficit of the teaching. I think that's a very powerful learning tool. So it, 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 you've also got to think about what is your philosophy of how you want children to learn, and if that's very clear, you've got to give the teacher the time and space to develop that.
1: Mm. Can I pick up on? It wasn't something I'd planned to explore, but I'd, I'd just like to ask. Really cool, ben. you're talking about. Um, that kind of culture. And I, I guess I'm imagining a child coming into your school. Do you have a nursery or is it from sort of reception age?
2: Nursery, nursery.
1: Nursery. Yeah. So they're coming in at three. What does your, I'm really curious about your early years provision. It's just really come to mind. Like wh- how do you foster that natural curiosity and that desire to learn early on? I think we'll have a lot of early years colleagues out there really curious about what that looks like at the start of uh, well, their well, journey.
2: Well, uh, I've just in the last week been, been asked to, to to lend my voice to Uh, trying to stop the baseline testing
1: I saw that Um,
2: and I at when when I first came to Highlands I did I had to look at key stage 2 attainment as Mm. as as a quick fix in that first year but behind the scenes the worst setting in our school was the early years absolutely awful low parental engagement low expectations a a lack of quality experiences for children to engage and talk. Um, So my belief is that that we, as a school, we invest more in our early years than any other age group because Mm. that is where you set the learning behaviours. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take the early age group and enable year five and six children to be learning in that same way. So we want an environment in which our children are, are able to lead their learning. So what the, what the adults are, they are facilitating talk. They're not limiting talk, they're extending talk. They're engaging the children in thinking about their experiences. Those are the starting points in terms of the learning behaviour. So we, we use like a reciprocal reading programme uh, with picture books in, in early years because the focus is on engaging children in thinking and talking. Um, we have fantastic um, early years led by uh, another teacher who was told she was rubbish when I first came. And at the end of my first year, I, I, I made the uh, early years lead and uh, I was the only person on that leadership team that um, wanted her. And she's um, now an SLE for early years and the primary science teacher of the year. Um, just another example of, of someone set up to succeed. But it's really focused around um, developing children's critical thinking skills and developing children's talk and, and, and engagement. And then we just, carry that on
1: right through the school mm, thank you it was good to just get a flavor of what that journey you know looks like at the start um at your school so you, you talked a lot about all the different sort of staff in your school the different colleagues and, and and there's a real sense in the book that you think it's very important you value every single role in the school and the part everyone has to play um and you, you use a little phrase i don't know whether you remember it. you talk about how uh You'd even trust anyone to run a staff briefing or attend a heads briefing on your behalf. Yeah. Talk to us about yeah. that. I reckon some people read that and go, yeah, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. but well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you can talk about authentic distributed leadership. Uh, I'll tell you the one thing that probably everyone says, oh, we distribute leadership. No, that's you just distribute titles. <laughs> You're not distributing leadership if you don't give all the decision-making and responsibility that goes with it. Uh, but I will openly say that uh, an Nqt should be able to within reason um lead enough, uh, make a decision make ninety percent of the decisions if the values of your school are strong enough that ni- that that ninety percent of those decisions could be made by an Nqt and yeah, I think it was probably halfway through that first year where i said you're 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 leading the staff briefing and it's like what what do you mean you're leading because because I want to demonstrate, this is not my school; it's everybody's school. Um, and and for the head teachers' briefings, I mean, it's really silly when you get leaders telling you what good learning looks like, and then getting a hundred people sitting in a room just listening to one person come up and read something out. And why shouldn't and why shouldn't they go to the? Why shouldn't someone from the office team go to the to, to the head teachers' briefing? And I think the issue with that is because. Well, uh, this might sound controversial, but often there are more egos in the room when there's a group of head teachers mm. than there are with, with other groups of people because it's that self, sense of self importance. Now, if all you're doing is, re- I, don't even, I, can't, I, I didn't realise I put that in the book, but if all you're doing is um, taking notes and, and, and asking relevant questions, then you know I'm not, I don't want to be insulting anybody, but different people should have the opportunity to do that, and different people then get the opportunity to feed back to me. The, the, the purpose of leading a briefing is um, often adults are very comfortable in front of children because that's, that's their bread and butter. But actually, it's nice to have the opportunity to, to show that this is, this is a shared environment that um, we're all responsible for informing everybody about the school. We're all responsible for listening. I, and I just think it's a nice way to show that it's a true distributed learning environment.
1: Covenant, just to finish... And I hate the idea of finishing this conversation, but at some point we need to go to bed. There will be people out there that see your book, really buy into it. They're really inspired by it. And one or two things are perhaps getting in the way in their minds. The first is it's just too idealistic. Sounds good. Sounds lovely. I'm convinced by him intellectually, but I just can't see it happening in my school or in my context. So, there's that bit if you could address that. And then the other bit is like you described earlier in that stage of your career, I'm a deputy or I'm an assistant head or something. I'm buying this big time. And what do I do? Because I don't quite have that scope of influence just yet to really transform that in my school. So, there's sort of two questions there. So, feel free to take your time over the both of those.
2: All right. um, I'll think about the second one first because I absolutely understand. Uh, the challenges and the limitations. What I would say is though that all of those activities combined is where you have the dynamic effect. But having said that, if you introduce peer learning or, or teacher engagement and research, you are going to have an incremental impact upon the quality of children's learning because the greatest factor that impacts upon the quality of children's learning in school is the quality of teaching. And that is the thing that most leaders grapple with. How can I improve the quality of teaching? Well, you do that in a collaborative way. So there's certain things that as a deputy, and like I said, when I was a deputy of that school, uh, within two years, it went from bottom of the local authority league table to, well, it it wasn't going to get above certain schools. It can eventually, but where you've got schools with with less deprivation or, or, you know, there's some church schools in the local three, but got right up there in the top 10 and was in the top 2% nationally for pupil progress because as a deputy, my focus was on teaching and learning, right? So you can absolutely make a fantastic impact. There may be an ultimate limit though. The first example is interesting because I don't think I've ever had that question asked of me in that particular way. Because it doesn't seem idealistic to me. It, it, it seems that the... A doctoral research seems actually quite clinical to me. That I've, 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 I've polished this stone for eight years until I've come to the real things that make a difference. And bearing in mind that my research was conducted with teachers. So teachers are telling me they like to collaborate. They want opportunities to collaborate. Practice is showing me they don't get enough opportunities to collaborate. Um, So from an idealistic perspective, what I think I can do now, which perhaps I couldn't do in the book, is I'm now developing it for a third time. And it's actually getting easier. Firstly, it's getting easier because there's more professional respect for me because Mm. I've I've, I've got more back uh, catalogue of success. Mm. and Secondly, I don't have the doubts. That you you you're describing that people will have, because I did probably have doubts. Um, and thirdly, I'm seeing that it does has I always had this fear, oh, it worked here, you know, you've got the teachers, they're all like that. Um I'd I'd say that actually if leaders worked in this way, it will be their jobs will be easier because they aren't taking the pressure of responsibility that they're distributing that responsibility. And I don't think, I don't see it as difficult. I, I do not see it as difficult at all. I'm, I'm, I'm working in the most challenging school in the local authority, which has had a long period without success. Um, and it's five form entry and without going too much, anything that could possibly be uncovered is uncovered. And I'm absolutely not deviating from the principals. Um, and we would have, we would have got, the reason I'm in there is we would have got Ofsted any week. And I would literally, I said, give me six weeks. Actually, I started just a week before Christmas. If you'd have given me to half term, I think I, after that half term, I would be able to demonstrate the impact on the quality of children's learning experiences. Because the teachers are telling me that the children are more engaged, the children are talking more. And that is the impact you want. Um, so I'd I'd be more confident now than when I when I wrote the book. Um and just a final point on that is two schools last year, same philosophy, same approach, and I know it's not about Ofsted, um, both graded outstanding everything. Um because it, because it was not my voice. It was, you know, there comes a point where I could talk and talk. Actually, when people visit my school, I don't do the talking. The teachers do the talking and that's the biggest thing that I get is that, that, that the head teachers are going, how do you get your, t- how do you get your teachers to talk to that? Well, giving them a chance to speak. Um, so I really like that question because it makes me think, but, um, I am, I am really confident. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was I feel a sense of duty actually that we've got to stop losing teachers to the profession. And, and I think you, you may have seen that slide at the webinar. That's that was a required improvement school. We've gone eight years and we've spent twenty eight pounds on advertising, recruitment and retention. And it's interesting you say about the early years. Our mobility at our school was about sixty-one percent. So only sixty-one percent of our year six would have started with us. Um one of our of this one year four class, which I think there's only about twelve of them now who were there for the beginning. So these are challenges. But the more challenging the school is, the more you need to work um, in this way. So it's making me think about how I maybe can even uh, um, project that message even further.
1: Cool, van, I'm going to thank you for an incredibly interesting podcast that I'm going to just be buzzing about. And thankfully, I'm not in school for a couple of weeks. so I've got some time to really reflect on this. Uh, but thank you so much. Steve?
0: I just echo that, van? I mean, I feel quite privileged to have been sitting here listening to the conversation because there's a lot to digest but wow it's um it's a very strong message that's been sent out I think people I think I can talk on behalf of the listeners are going to really respond well to this actually and I'd love to see the the reaction to the podcast
1: it's just great to um project another voice that is showing there is another way so thank you
2: well, th- thanks for inviting me. I've really enjoyed the uh, discussion, and you know, I, I know when I meet people, who that there's a passion and enthusiasm for not just doing the best for the children, but but you need to do the best for the adults to do that. So, any time you want to to have a follow up, or mm. if you get some more questions, and that you let me know.
1: Oh, we will. Thank Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: we will. Don't keep the deputy. The deputy.